you are listening to the CFP Podcast with your hosts, Chappie, Wax, and Sully. College football knowledge dropping in three, two, one. Hey, happy day, college football fans. It is the first week in November. Actually, I guess we're in the second week in November, which means this is week two of Maction. The fall weather is finally hitting us, at least us good people here in the Midwest. It's great to see the colors on the on the trees, but also in the stadiums. What a fun weekend we had last weekend. Not so much if you're a better or a prognosticator, but as a college football fan, it was kind of cool to see the upsets. It was interesting to see teams that really weren't expected to do certain things. They're rising up. Uh, we're seeing a lot more egos being brandished in this early part of November. So let's see how long it can last. So, you know, our question this week is now what? All right. So to play for the gig in December, you've got to take care of November and, and take it one week at a time. Don't look ahead to your conference championship. Don't look ahead to the college football playoff. You've got to win today and only focus on today. Like so many coaches say, let's go one and oh this week. And it's a lot easier said than done. But we're going to give it all to you. We're going to go all over the college football landscape, and we're going to tell you where you should put your eyes, your hearts, and maybe a little bit of cash into in our segment today. So this is our Week 11 preview here on the CFP Podcast. I am your co-host, Chappie, joined as always by Mike Waxman. Please make sure that you follow us on Twitter. I am at ChappieCFB. He is at CFFMWaxman. So get the good stuff from Twitter. Also, check out any other outlet that uh, might bring you the goods and the joys of this great sport of college football. So let's get right to it, Mike Waxman. Let's start off the opening drive. Into the end zone. That's touchdown on the game opening drive. So this Tuesday, yesterday, as we record this podcast, they came out with the second college football playoff rankings of the season. And to give a quick rundown, we'll just go through the top 10. Clemson at number 10 at 8-1 and one after a loss to Notre Dame. Alabama also following a loss. They're at number 9 at 7-2, and two, the only or one of only two two-loss teams in the top 10. USC at 8 at 8-1. Eight and one. LSU jumps up to number 7 after their victory. The gutsy two-point call by Brian Kelly that paid off to Mason Taylor. They're at number 7 at 7-2. Seven and two. Oregon and Bo Nix, who is a sneaky Heisman contender. They're at 8-1. Tennessee drops to number five with an 8-1 record. They're lost to Georgia in, really, in a game in which they really got handled. TCU moves into the top four after you know, some head scratching and some questions and palms raised about the Horned Frogs and why they weren't in the top four last week. They're there now, so now it's their chance to keep winning and keep proving that they should be there. Michigan at number three at nine and zero. Ohio State at number two at nine and zero. Those two seem to be on a collision course for the matchup in Columbus on November twenty sixth. And taking over the number one spot, no surprise, the Georgia Bulldogs. They were number one in the AP poll last week, number three in the CFP rankings. And Stetson Bennett and that Georgia defense and Kirby Smart made no question, no bones about who is the unanimous number one. It's them dogs. So Mike Waxman, we'll start with you. Your thoughts, your reactions to this recent college football playoff rankings, at least numbers one through six, and maybe anything else within those numbers that kind of jumps out to you as too high or too low. 
I was a little bit surprised just given the way the, the committee in week one had kind of downgraded TCU because they always get behind and they're kind of, um, they have a good fourth quarter, but the, the, the committee uh, chair, uh, Boo Corrigan, even said, even mentioned that as a reason why TCU was seven in week one. So I know that Tennessee, they lost 27-13. Anyone who watched that game knows it wasn't as close as that. That said, I was a little surprised that TCU did get into the top four. I understand that the zero in the loss column is a bit more impressive than the one in the loss column for the Vols. But if you look at some of the other pertinent metrics that they use, Tennessee has a much better strength of schedule. They still have a number two strength of record. They still have the number two game control. And they're better in just a power rating standpoint. So I actually thought Tennessee would be four. And so when they dropped to five, I'm going, okay, the committee's kind of going against what their their metrics say. So maybe after two weeks, and obviously this has a few more weeks to suss itself out, but maybe this is the year that the loss column is the most important thing because all of the other metrics seem to favor Tennessee at four, but the, the, the zero in the loss column probably is what gave TCU the edge. And then TCU gets to walk on the edge this week playing Texas – so uh, we'll see if they get behind and have a big finish or if this is the week that their storybook season comes crashing down. Otherwise, there really weren't a whole lot of other surprises. I did think that Alabama, I know they lost on a two-point conversion late, and they've really lost two games by four points. I actually thought they would fall out of the top ten, though. Um, I just – it was in Baton Rouge. It was a great atmosphere. I still didn't think people were totally sold on LSU till the end of the game, whereas people were sold on Tennessee coming in. So I thought that maybe Alabama losing that game, whether by one, whether by ten, whatever, that that might be just enough to drop them out of the top ten. But apparently um, their, their strength of schedule is, is obviously helping them because that is a top ten schedule. So they are staying at nine. But if they lose to Ole Miss this week, then who, then who knows how, how far they'll drop because Ole Miss is another team the committee doesn't seem to really love, even though they're eight and one, they've got them outside the top ten. Yeah, I really think the TCU at number four was a political ploy. It was the committee's way of saying, okay, we threw TCU a bone. And if they end up winning out and going undefeated, the committee's going to look like they knew what they were doing and TCU will have earned it. If TCU gets bounced even this week by Texas, at least the committee can say, well, we, we put them at number four. They had their chance and it didn't pull through. I don't think they're the fourth best team in the country. I actually would put Tennessee at number four because you look at TCU's schedule, the teams that they played right now, the only team in the CFP rankings that, TCU has a win over is Kansas State, and they were down pretty big early in that one. And had it not been for injuries to Adrian Martinez and Will Howard, I'm still convinced that Kansas State wins that game on the road in Fort Worth. I mean, the other victories that they have, Oklahoma State is not ranked anymore. Oklahoma is struggling to grasp air right now. SMU is scoring a lot of points, but I believe they're only – I think they're four and four, or maybe they're five and four, but you know, um, 
Colorado and Tarleton State, you can basically wipe that off the map. Kansas is playing better. They became bowl eligible last week. But again, that was just a seven-point win on the road. And at the time, what was a big game? Honestly, I think Oregon, you could make the argument that they might be in that top four because their only loss was to Georgia. But Oregon has been playing probably the most impressive all-around football uh, (laughs) outside of those top three right now. Head-to-head, I would put Oregon over TCU in a in a uh, head-to-head matchup. Honestly, right now, I would have Oregon over Tennessee head-to-head. Granted, in my own rankings, for whatever they're worth, I put Tennessee at four because their only loss is to a Georgia team. Um, they blew out number seven LSU. So when you look at what Tennessee has done and only that one loss is mm-hmm. on the road in Athens, and that was a, a game – if if you didn't have that bad weather in the second half, could things have been even closer? Possibly. I think that that really hampered Hendon Hooker. But, I mean, Georgia just completely controlled that game. So to, to win, what was it, 28-13 uh, or, or um, you know, I know that they – 27, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, uh, nonetheless, I think Tennessee right now is more deserving of a number four spot than Oregon. But if those two teams were to play on a neutral site right now – I honestly would take the Ducks head-to-head. Yeah, well, and the thing with Oregon is um, they're another one. Their metrics are better than TCU's. They have a better schedule strength. They're slightly behind in strength of record, but their game control is top 10, whereas TCU, with these coming from behind every week and winning, they're always going to have a low game control. And then Oregon is two points better in in the FBI power rating. So... I don't think that that necessarily would be a stretch. I wouldn't put Oregon four, but I don't necessarily disagree with you that it's not a stretch to have them ahead of TCU based on the way they're playing right now and the way the overall numbers line up. I do think top to bottom that the Big 12 is a better conference and a more competitive conference. So that may also be helping TCU, but just as team comparison versus team comparison, um, if someone wanted to put Oregon ahead of TCU, I would not at all be against it. And I'll tell you what, I would put UCLA and Utah ahead of Clemson and Ole Miss right now. I think that um, when you look at those two teams in the Pac-12 there, I think UCLA and Utah are playing better complete football than Clemson and Ole Miss are right now. Clemson and Ole Miss, their their issues lately, surprisingly, especially with Clemson, have been on the defensive side of the ball, whereas UCLA and certainly Utah, I have much more confidence in their defensive uh, efforts. Getting back to Oregon real quick before we move on to our conference calls, Oregon, if they win out the remaining games on their schedule, they've got Washington at home this week, they have to play Utah, and then they play Oregon State, and Oregon State we know is an improved team. With their only loss, if they run the tables and and make it to the Pac-12 title game and then win the Pac-12 title game, presumably against USC, then I think you have a serious consideration for Oregon uh, being in that top four, even over a potentially undefeated TCU team. Because to your point on the Big 12 being better, I think the Big 12 right now overall top to bottom looks better. But with what Oregon has to accomplish in the remaining three weeks plus their uh, conference championship game, I think whoever TCU plays in the Big 12 title game, presuming that they make it, is going to be less impressive than seeing Oregon beat Washington, Utah, Oregon State, and then potentially USC in four consecutive weeks. I think how can you 
not put the Ducks in the top four if that plays out that way. But we've got a long way to go. Right, and 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 I agree, but I'm telling you, and maybe because it was an opening game, it'll give a little leeway. A 46-point loss, that just looks like a really big black eye. I understand that Georgia is great and they're number one and they're probably going to go into the CFP undefeated. Yeah. But um, even the year that Ohio State was the four seed in 2014, they only lost to Virginia Tech by by 14 points. I believe the stat is no team that has lost by more than 23 has ever gotten in. So this that will be another litmus test. Does LSU – if they win the SEC and somehow upset Georgia, are they the first ever two-loss team to get in? Oregon would be the first mega, mega blowout team to ever get in. So there are some definite precedents for the committee to consider as the things go on. Now, if Oregon drops, I mean, it's not going to be easy to play Washington, even at home. Washington, Utah, and Oregon State is a pretty big gauntlet at the end of the year. And I agree with you. If they get through that, they should definitely be considered, but there's going to be some real interesting conundrums for the committee to look at when when everything is said and done. If Oregon wins out, if LSU wins out, and if they've still got all the 46-point the loss, the two losses, all that other stuff. So it's going to be a really, really fun last three or four weeks. Yeah, won't that make um, heads spin and uh, possibly blow up if LSU wins out and beats Georgia? And let's say they beat Georgia by, you know, two scores in that SEC title game. It's going to be real hard to keep out that LSU team who only lost by one point to a pretty good Florida State team. Not a great Florida State, but a pretty good Florida State team. And then a Tennessee team who presumably could be a one-loss Tennessee team um, so you, you're faced with a one-loss Georgia, a two-loss LSU who will have beaten Georgia, and then a one-loss Tennessee who will have beaten LSU. So you've got to split hairs there, and I'm glad it's them and not me. Yep. All right. Well, let's get into conference calls here. So we'll start off as we always do with the SEC. And there's not too much rhyme or reason to the order of the conferences that we break down. But the SEC right now, um, a lot of teams in the top 15, you know, kind of going around the, the the big one that hit, there were two ranked teams that were quote-unquote upset. Formerly number one in the CFP, Tennessee drops 27-13 to 13 against Georgia. Stetson Bennett looked once again like the sexier quarterback when he goes up against it, a lot of times people will automatically by default put Stetson Bennett as the also ran, but he continues to show up. He did it against Bryce Young in the Natty last year, did it against Bo Nix in the opener, did it against Anthony Richardson against Florida. And now he does it against Hendon Hooker. He goes 17 to 25, 257 yards, two touchdowns, zero interceptions, a rushing touchdown. The offense just looks so smooth. And I got to say, Todd Munkin, needs more credit and if he is not at the top of head coaching lists and I mean like even power five head coaching lists if I'm Auburn I'm seriously considering making a push for Todd Munkin I don't care what the track record is with coordinators who maybe haven't had a chance to prove themselves yet you need something there at Auburn and Todd Munkin is doing all the right things at Georgia and we see what Dan Lanning is doing 
um, under the Kirby tree, what he, the good things he's doing at Oregon this year. So Georgia essentially has the East locked up, um, ready to go for the, the championship game in Atlanta. Alabama drops to LSU, the lower-ranked Tigers, with a one-point victory. Brian Kelly goes for two and wins. But the, the concern I have here, and really it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, Brian Kelly talked more about himself, and it was a lot of me, me, me talk in the post game. You know, uh, I was able to come here and turn around this culture. I was the uh, the one who got this victory. I was the one who hadn't beaten Nick Saban, and now I did. I mean, the I think coaching 101 is regardless of what the reality is, you always deflect it to your players. And I'm not saying that Kelly didn't do that, but I think more of the emphasis in his post game talk was on him. And even as a non-LSU guy, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But if I was an LSU fan, I would I would kind of be scratching my head saying, you know, what about the great play of your quarterback, Jaden Daniels? What about the, the, uh, the great work of your assistant coaches? Any good coach that I've ever heard talk, Wax, has always deflected that to a great staff and to their players. Your thoughts on that real quick? Yeah, I, I, I tend to um... – I tend to agree. I think that that's just something that they, they try not to get caught up in a whole lot while, while the season's going on. And they, that, that's why they're there. I mean, they're coaches. They're supposed to take on all of the, the outside stuff that goes on um, during the season. Yeah. And uh, I mean, speaking of Jaden, I'm sorry, Jaden Daniels, uh, 182 yards passing, two touchdowns, zero interceptions, 95 yards rushing. Once again, the leading rusher for the Tigers. Granted, um, they haven't gotten much production out of their running backs this year, but when you've got a quarterback that's running for nearly uh, a C mark a, the entire game and uh, keeping defenses honest, both respecting his legs and respecting his arm and the way he can control that offense, I mean, he is uh, a, a, an incredible weapon and if it's not for the the superior play of so many quarterbacks this year, Daniels could be a Heisman candidate. Uh, moving on to Texas A&M and Florida, the Aggies handed their fifth straight loss. This hasn't happened since the 80s. Now, 19 players were out with the flu. Um, Texas A&M needs to win out to make a bowl from here on forward. They were a preseason number six. There was all that talk about their outstanding recruiting class, which on paper it seemed to be. Uh, they were, had some guys paying dividends. Freshman Evan Stewart, eight catches, 100-plus yards. Um, but, you know, and, and Connor Wigman is starting to look good as the starting quarterback there. But he got banged up, and Haynes King had to come in in relief. The Aggies dropped to the Gators 41-24. So, again, AM is fighting for bowl eligibility, and there's questions flying around about, you know, is, is this the job for Jimbo? Is, is he the right guy for Aggieland? Certainly a lot of heat going to be on him between now and kickoff next uh, September. Uh, Arkansas, a team that we thought would handle the Liberty Flames at home, they they dropped that one, giving Liberty their first SEC victory or their first win over an SEC team in their school's history. Uh, they're 8-1 and one now. Hugh Freeze had never beaten Arkansas in seven seasons as an assistant and as a head coach at Ole Miss. And so he kind of made the comment afterwards, like, you know, what a hell of a time to get my first win in Fayetteville. And, and it seemed to look very good for him. I have to imagine he is got to be in the top three for the Auburn job if he wants it, if he wants to come back to the SEC. And I think 
the the type of coach and the type of uh, you know I want to say ego, but I say that respectfully that Hugh Freeze seems to have. I have to think that he's he's got to give some serious consideration there. Um, speaking of Auburn, the uh, the Tigers and interim coach Cadillac Williams they give Mississippi State a push but drop an overtime loss, thirty nine thirty three. Auburn was down twenty four to three in the first half but came back to make it a game only to, to lose in overtime. Will Rogers, another big game, passing the football, 357 yards, three touchdowns and only one interception. He passes Dak Prescott for career yards, um, passing and career touchdowns. Tyrus Wheat had four solo tackles, two sacks, three and a half tackles for loss, and two quarterback hurries. We'll talk more about him when we preview the Bulldogs game against the other Bulldogs, Georgia, in our pick segment. This was uh, – the fifth straight loss for the Auburn Tigers. And, you know, much like last year, they started off the year maybe better than people expected, but, um, you know, kind of going down in flames right now. They got rid of Brian Harson. You have to credit Cadillac Williams for the fight that his team put up. He was very emotional before the game, but, um, you know, Auburn with some work to do, clearly. Mississippi State, by the way, does qualify for a bowl with the victory as does Kentucky with their 21-17 ugly win over Missouri. Some bad special teams play in that game. And then also qualifying for a bowl, the South Carolina Gamecocks, who go into Vanderbilt and win 38-27. Juice Wells, four catches, 110 yards, two touchdowns. Um, that was the four, 14th straight victory for South Carolina against the Commodores. Um so that's the SEC wax. Um, let's move on now to the Big Ten. Uh, Big Ten, there were not uh, a whole. Uh, most things held true to form. Um, I guess the one real head scratcher was Michigan State knocking off Illinois twenty-three to fifteen. Illinois yeah. has been one of the better uh, stories of the year. And certainly one of the better defenses of the year, but Michigan State managed to rush for over 100 yards. Jalen Berger had 81 yards on his own and averaged over five yards per carry, and that has not been the way Illinois has been playing all year. They just looked out of sorts. Um, they, they, they were missing tackles, which they don't normally do. They had a couple of penalties that kept drives alive. That's one kind of like the Indiana one. You don't know how it happened because – those are two teams that the Illini are obviously superior to, but they, they dropped the game. Fortunately for them, they still had a little bit of a cushion that they still look like they're in the driver's seat in the West, but they cannot afford to slip up again because both Iowa and Wisconsin are starting to come around. Iowa beat Purdue 24-3. The fact that Iowa won wasn't a, a huge surprise, but holding Purdue – which was pretty healthy. I mean, Aiden O'Connell played quarterback to three points was really just a continuation of what Iowa's done all year. This is the fifth game this year where an opponent has scored 10 points or less. Um, and the funny thing is Iowa's lost two of those. So um, right. they've actually started to put up offense. They had 33 against Northwestern and 24 against Purdue. So maybe it just took forever, but the Hawkeyes look like they're starting to hum now. And they get Wisconsin this week. And Wisconsin went into College Park and pretty much handled Maryland, which got Talia Tagovailoa back. And they won by two touchdowns. So Wisconsin really was not challenged. Um, Minnesota played kind of a sluggish game against Nebraska. Wasn't ever really in danger of losing. Mo Ibrahim continued 
his assault on the Minnesota record books. He now has a streak of 16 consecutive 100-yard games. He is within shouting distance of Daryl Thompson's school rushing record for yards. It's about the only record he doesn't currently hold. And with uh, three more games left in the season, if he averages 135, he gets it. And for him, that's a pretty average day. So uh, kudos to Mo Ibrahim. Ohio State Northwestern, from from an outcome standpoint, that Ohio State won wasn't a surprise. The result, 21-7, to certainly made people take note. If you were just perusing and didn't know any of the circumstances, you'd say, man, what happened there? Well, there were 50-mile-an-hour winds. There was rain sideways. You literally couldn't throw the ball. Northwestern took it down on their opening drive and scored and then had 200 yards the rest of the game in their final eight drives. So the Ohio State defense, after being baffled a little bit by some Wildcat quarterback from Cam Porter, uh, buckled down on defense. They did enough to uh, win offensively. Actually, a new little wrinkle, C.J. Stroud ran, used his feet, and ran for 79 yards. And Ryan Day has said going forward, maybe we've hit on something with a little bit of a specter of a quarterback run because that was the one thing that sort of made Ohio State as easy as a team that scores as well as they do is to defend. That made them easier to defend. Now if C.J. Stroud can run, this may this offense may end up being unstoppable. It may themselves may be the only ones that can stop them. Um, Penn State rolled over Indiana. Michigan struggled a little bit, trailed at halftime against Rutgers, and then opened it up in the second half and won uh, 52 to 17. So as we uh, mentioned in the CFP segment, it looks like Ohio State and Michigan are on a collision course. All right, moving out to the Pac-12. Five teams are currently ranked, or five teams were ranked going into the weekend, I should say. Um, you're probably going to have the first two teams that played on Friday swap those rankings, and actually they did. So Oregon State was ranked 23rd. They lost a three-point uh, contest out in Seattle against Washington. Washington now is ranked after that victory. They got a game-winning 92-yard drive at the end. Michael Penix, 298 passing yards, a touchdown, just one interception. Um, the uh, you know going back to the the teams in the Pac-12, I think you can make the argument that outside of the SEC, if you were to take the top half of all the Power Five conferences, the Pac-12, I would put them at number two in terms of the best top half. Again, I would put the SEC at number one, but you've got number nine USC. Number eight, Oregon, and this is the rankings as of last weekend anyway. Number 12, UCLA. Number 14, Utah. And then, you know, 23, Oregon State slash Washington because they're going to they're in the rankings this week. Um, of those five teams that are ranked, all seven have seven more – or I'm sorry, all five teams have seven or more wins. Three of those five have eight wins. And five of the six Pac-12 winners this week scored 41-plus plus points. So in a day and age where offense seems to be the, the side to err on, they certainly have that. So, you know, speaking of those Oregon Ducks, they beat Colorado out in Boulder 49 to 10. Patrick Nix, I'm sorry, Bo Nix, um, another ho-hum five total touchdown day, two passing, two running, and, oh, one receiving touchdown as well. The Ducks had three unique touchdown recipients. Josh Connerly, as a tackle eligible, caught the, uh, the game's first touchdown pass. Middle linebacker and All-American Noah Sewell came in in a goal line formation on second down and got a one-yard touchdown plunge. And then 
as we already mentioned, Bo Nix with that uh, throwback pass from Bucky Irving for about 12 yards, walking into the end zone. Uh, Cornerback Christian Gonzalez in his first game against his former team has two picks in that game, so showed up big um, against the, the team that he played for the last couple of seasons. Back to Knicks, 20 of 24, 274 passing yards, two touchdowns throwing and two touchdowns running. Um, they're just a big play offense, and like we touched, touched on in the last segment, this is a team that people are going to have to reckon with. UCLA with a 50-36 uh, win over Arizona State. Casimir uh, Allen stepped up in the absence of Zach Charbonnet, 11 carries for 137 yards and a touchdown, DTR, uh, 10 carries, 120 yards. So no matter who it is in that backfield, if you're playing with Dorian Thompson-Robinson, um, that's explosion right there. Uh, Utah makes uh, easy work of Arizona with a 45-20 victory. Uh, Washington State pours it on Stanford, a Stanford team that did beat the number 20 Notre Dame fighting Irish earlier this year in South Bend. The Cougars had no issue with the Cardinal forcing four turnovers. Now Stanford was down its top three running backs, and they got a good game out of freshman defensive end David Bailey, who looks to be uh, a, a very good defensive player in the Pac-12 for years to come. Nine tackles, five solo, two tackles for loss. And then USC, you watch the game, and they, they really had Cal for most of the game, but they allowed the Cal Bears to come back, and USC finishes with just a six-point victory. Jack Plummer for the Bears in a losing effort, 35 of 49, 406 passing yards, three touchdowns. USC still looking really balanced on offense. Caleb Williams, 360 passing yards, four touchdowns. Jermaine Dye, 98 yards rushing on the ground. Michael Jackson steps up in the absence of Jordan Addison once again. Five catches for 115 yards and two touchdowns. Taj Washington, seven catches for 112. So they continue to, to make big plays, pop plays on that offense. But that defense is going to need to start um, keeping opponents out of the end zone if the Trojans have serious considerations at a college football playoff run, Wax. Uh, let's get into the ACC next. Yes, the uh, crowning moment of the ACC was uh, Clemson, who I think people thought might have had the easiest path to the college football playoff, um, really fell flat on, on their face, got just completely buried by Notre Dame, 35-14 to 14, um, in South Bend. Notre Dame was able to pretty much stop everything Clemson tried offensively. DJU got pulled again, then went back in. Those 14 points were an oh, thank you at the end. That was never a close game. And Clemson probably saw its uh, CFP hopes go up in smoke with that one. Um, so that was probably the big surprise of the week. Um, remember when Florida State Miami used to mean something? Um, it no longer does, mostly because of the way Miami is right now. They scored three points against Florida State. And it's the second week in a row that they have failed to score a touchdown in regulation. They had the uh, infamous field goal fest against Virginia the week earlier, and they got a field goal against Florida State. So they have not scored a touchdown since October 22nd when they lost to Duke. So Miami is just spiraling out of control. Florida State looked very good. Jordan Travis played an excellent game, uh, was one of the better quarterback performances of the week. So uh, Florida State, Finally gets back into the postseason picture. Good for them. Maybe Mike Norvell has turned the heat down a little bit 
on his seat that started the year pretty hot. Uh, a seat that is getting hotter after a big start was Syracuse. They lost for the third time in a row to Pitt in a pretty nondescript 19-9 to game. Um, that one did not have a lot of offensive fireworks that you thought it might have because Syracuse has been a pretty good offensive team this year, but they could not muster double digits against a very good Pitt defense. Uh, Drake May continued to do what he does in a tougher-than-expected game with Virginia. Uh, Virginia has been challenged a little bit offensively, but they were able to put up 28 points against North Carolina. But um, May, again, firmly in the Heisman hunt, completed 70% of his passes, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Um, the last three weeks, he's gone 10-0 and zero in touchdowns to interceptions, and he's averaging over nine yards per attempt. So uh, Drake May is continuing to do big things for the Tar Heels. And last but not least, you have to wonder if maybe Jeff Halfley might be on his way out of Boston College after they lost to Duke 38-31. The Eagles have now lost nine of their last 11 games dating back to last year. One of those wins was over FCS Maine this season. Um, I know that they've had some injuries to Phil Jurkovic and some of the other um, big-time players that they've had as starters, but they just really seem like there's a malaise in uh, Chestnut Hill, and I, I really thought that Halfley had them going a couple seasons ago, but they've really taken uh, quite a bit of a tumble. All right, moving on to the Big 12. So three teams after last weekend have now qualified for a bowl. Two ranked teams went down in Saturday's action. So starting at the top, number seven, TCU, a 10-point winner at home against Texas Tech in the noon slate. Uh, another, quote-unquote, comeback victory for the Horned Frogs. Darius Davis started things off with a nifty 82-yard punt return for a touchdown. That is um, his fifth, which is a school record, and he's got six total returns for touchdowns, one kick return and then five punt returns. And I believe that has him tied for uh, school for the school record, one more of either kind, and he will own the record. But man, is that guy lightning. Davis also had a receiving touchdown and Kendry Miller put the frogs ahead with a touchdown in the third quarter. That was his 10th straight game with a rushing touchdown. He had 21 carries for 158 yards and a score that we just mentioned. D winners, two sacks, two and a half tackles for loss in the winning effort for the Horn Frogs. So moving on to the, the only matchup between two ranked teams, number 24 Texas goes into Manhattan, Kansas, and gets a seven-point victory over the Wildcats. B. John Robinson, uh, 161 yards rushing in the first half. He finished with 209 total yards on the ground. A touchdown, a big 61-yarder in uh, the first half, or 41-yarder, I should say. That's Texas's sixth straight win over the Kansas State Wildcats. Um, but it was also the uh, the first road victory for the Longhorns in seven tries. It snaps a six-game road losing streak. Um, Jatavian Sanders and Xavier Worthy combined for nine catches for 96 yards and two touchdowns. Quinn Ewers. 197 yards, throwing the football. Adrian Martinez had a bit of a slow start, but ended up passing for 329 yards in a, a very impressive second half. Two touchdown passes, a rushing touchdown, but an interception and then a fumble on the potentially game-tying drive at the end there uh, put the game 
out of their hands for, for the Wildcats. So Texas qualifies for a bowl with the victory. Also qualifying for a bowl are the Kansas Jayhawks, who upset the number 18 Oklahoma State Cowboys. Uh, now, OSU is without Spencer Sanders and Garrett Rangel, who made his starting debut a freshman. Was 27 of 40, two touchdowns, but three interceptions proved to be backbreaking for the Pokes. Devin Neal with 224 rushing yards, 110 receiving yards, so 334 total yards. Jason Bean at quarterback for the injured Jalen Daniels, 18 of 23, 203 yards through the air and 93 yards rushing on the ground. So Jason Bean putting up Jaden Daniels type numbers from LSU in terms of getting it done passing and running the football. Baylor goes on the road and beats Oklahoma by three in a 38-35 shootout. They qualify for a bowl. Squirrel Williams, who has been nagged by injuries through his career, has a career-high 192 rushing yards on the day, which is nearly half of his career output coming into this game. Two touchdowns, could have had a third touchdown, but made a very heady play, um, stopping short of the goal line, with under two minutes to go so the Bears could run out the clock and not give the Sooners two minutes of time to score 10 points or more. Uh, We've seen that happen earlier this year where um, a team thinks that they have a safe double-digit lead and they don't play smart and they end up dropping that game. The one that comes to my mind is Memphis against Houston. Memphis cost me in that one. Uh, But anyway, I digress. And then um, Iowa State gets their first Big 12 win of the year with a 31-14 home victory over West Virginia. Hunter Deckers, 24 of 36, 219 yards passing, two touchdowns. Xavier Hutchinson, 10 catches for 123 yards, broke his own school record, which he set last year. Uh, Previously, 83 receptions in a season. He now has 86 for this year, and that number should continue to grow as well. Remarkable numbers for a remarkable receiver. And freshman Catavius Norton, 18 carries, 69 yards, um, a big day. And uh, Matt Campbell, their head coach, had nothing but high praise for both Hutchinson and the promise of Norton as a freshman. So that's uh, that's what we had in the Big 12 there, Wax. Um, and, you know, getting back to Iowa State real quick, what a streaky team they've been. They started off the year 3-0, including a Cyhawk victory over the Iowa Hawkeyes, their rival. Then they dropped five straight to uh, fall to three and five. Now with that victory over West Virginia, they're four and five. So with three games to go in the season, they've got to win two more and they can qualify for a bowl, which I believe will be the uh, the fifth straight season that they will have qualified for a bowl all under Matt Campbell. So um, things starting to look like they're possibly turning around for Iowa State, who's had some bum luck this year in their five losses. Uh, let's go to the group of five now, sir. All right. We had uh, quite a bit of excitement in the group of five, including an NCAA record for points in regulation ever when SMU beat Houston 77 to 63. No word on whether Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon fouled out in that one, but uh, (laughs) there were, I mean, it was just, they were passing all over the place. Um, Tanner Mordecai and Clayton Toon were just matching each other play for play. Uh, that's usually something you see like in a game in the fifties, it goes to OT. Maybe someone returns an interception in the overtime. Nope. That was 60 minutes worth of football in the always fun and often defensively, uh, absent, uh, American conference fun game, 
Purists probably won't like it because of the lack of defense, but it was literally every time you turned around, oh, there's another scoring play. So kudos to those teams for setting a record. Uh, UTSA knocked off UAB in a game that was expect that was kind of what was projected for the um, Conference USA title. UTSA has played three overtime games now, uh, winning two of them, and they've played six overtimes altogether. So they are not a team that ever does anything easily. Frank Harris had another big game for them. He certainly has to be the prohibitive choice for uh, probably Offensive Player of the Year in that league. He and Dwayne McBride will probably get the bulk of the votes for that, but I would think that UTSA's head-to-head win over UAB probably tips the scales toward Frank Harris. Troy and South Alabama both became bowl eligible out of the Sun Belt. Uh, If you had told people at the beginning of the year, hey, Troy and South Alabama will be bowl eligible before App State is, you probably could have won a bar bet on that one. Um, Troy beat South Alabama earlier in the year, 10 to six in a defensive slugfest. We'll probably give them the division title, but there's still some tricky games for both teams. So that is not over. And then last but not least, back in the American, USF lost to Temple, allowed Temple to score 52 points. And that must've been the last straw because Jeff Scott lost his job after the game. The Bulls at times this year looked like they were starting to put it together, that maybe he was trending the right way. A lot of people thought with his Clemson connections and the fact that he really was good for the Clemson receivers, that he would get the offense going. They have been hampered a little bit by injuries with their quarterbacks, but be that as it may, 4-26 and at USF, that is not going to get it done. So Jeff Scott was way, was given a pink slip. Yeah, and you know, you and I talked about it off air a little bit. A uh, lot of talent in that area of the state of Florida, and some seemingly pretty good resources for that university. It's up and coming. I mean, far, far from where they're at in 2007 when they were ranked number two in the country. So you have to wonder: Will Jeff Scott? maybe go back to Clemson because Clemson could use a little help on the offensive play calling side um, and who might be the next candidate for the job there in Tampa. When we come back, Wax and I are going to break down the big 12 matchup between the number four TCU Horn Frogs visiting the number 18 Texas Longhorns when we're joined by Jeff Mitchell and Jeremiah Paget, And then we will get into our picks of the seven most interesting games from the slate in Power 5 and also one from the G5. You're listening to the CFP Podcast with Chappie and Wax. We'll be right back. All right, fans, it is time for one of our favorite segments. It is Cover 4. Cover 4. I told you guys, one of my favorites. I love it. It's so much to go into it. And as we have liked to do as the season's got rolling along. We have reached out to insiders from two schools from the what we seem to be the biggest game of the week. And this week, it is none other than the TCU Horn Frogs, recently dubbed number four TCU Horn Frogs, going into Austin, Daryl K. Royal Stadium, to take on the Texas Longhorns, a team that is starting to tick upward. But this is nothing that's going to intimidate the Frogs. It's nothing that's going to get in the way of Sonny Dykes and his team's mission. And to talk to us about the Horned Frogs is Jeff Mitchell from the Frogcast TCU, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. Jeff, thanks for joining us tonight. 
Hey, guys, glad to be here with you. Looking forward to talking about college football. Yes, indeed. Um, Jeff, uh, first off, uh, thanks, thanks for coming on. My question is, for years and years and years, TCU had the identity of Gary Patterson, defense, hard-nosed. It's been almost a lightning-quick flip over to now an offensive team with Sonny Dykes. Are you surprised just how quickly the, the script is kind of flipped for the Horn Frogs and they're, they're second in the country in scoring to only uh, Ohio State. Are you a little bit surprised that it was this good, this quick on offense? You know, any TCU fan that predicted that the Frogs would be 9-0 and and number four in the country is lying to you. So, yes, we are, we are <laughs> I am surprised. But with that said, there's been talent here. TCU has consistently been the number three recruiting class in the Big 12 for, for years behind only Texas and Oklahoma. They have a chance to be the number one recruiting class in the new Big 12. Um, I, I don't want to say permanently, but that spot should be there for the taking going forward. So the Frogs have had a lot of talent that Sonny Dykes knew how to work with. Um, the, the last couple of years, there's just no nice way to put it. It's been really frustrating. It's been really frustrating for Frog fans. And it's been really frustrating for the coaching staff and most importantly, the players. And so to see the, the not only the wins, which obviously everything flows down from that, but the energy and the excitement. And, and one of the one of the things we say around our, our, our website is it's just fun to be a TCU fan again. And so even after everything Gary Patterson did for the program, I mean, I have an autographed picture of him in my office. There's a freaking statue of him outside of the stadium. TCU would not be having this season without everything that Gary had um, built as, as a foundation for, for Sonny to come in and, and just revamp it and make it hum. Even after Patterson uh, being done with, with the program, uh, there's just so much excitement, and it's you know it, it's good to be back in the in the conversation like the frogs were in 2014, 2015, big chunks of 2017. But frog fans are delighted. It's a lot of fun, and we're all surprised and just enjoying the ride. All right, Jeff. Um, you know that that was kind of getting to one of my questions. You know, Patterson made TCU into this modern brand, and we know that he's coaching for the other side now. What kind of impact do you think that might have in this game, being that he's familiar with? Dykes and Garrett Riley in their time when, you know, TCU played uh, SMU for the Iron Skillet, and, and he had a big part in TCU winning seven of the last 10 meetings against Texas. What kind of impact do you think Patterson might have on the other side this weekend? I think it'll honestly, honestly, I think it'll be overstated. I think if they're going to talk about sure. it on game day, if you take a drink every time they talk about Gary Patterson coaching <laughs> in Texas now against TCU, you're going to be drunk by 830. It. Right. it and so you talk about what advantage is Gary going to have against Sonny Dykes and, and Garrett Riley? I don't know because he didn't have an advantage on them against against them on the field. My people talk about Sonny Dykes just throwing the ball down the field. That Garrett Riley knows how to scheme up and 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 just have you know the spread offense 2.0. What are vivid memories burned into my brain in 2019 and in 2021? is that when SMU had the ball in the fourth quarter and TCU needed a stop to find a way to uh, crawl back in and win a game, SMU just ran it down their throats. And that there is a run game that is physical, that knows how to assert itself at the line of scrimmage. You know, we all thought, everybody that covers the team and that follows the team, thought that the offensive line was going to be the biggest weak, weak, weakness for this offense this year. Now, I'm not saying that it's the you know, the best offensive line in the country. It's probably not even the best offensive line in the Big 12. But the Frogs know how to run the ball. 
And yeah. they have a, a great backfield with Kendra Miller, Amari DiMarcado. I like this kid Trent Battle out of Alabama that they moved from um, running uh, from quarterback to running back. Uh, Bailey, who is a transfer from Louisiana Lafayette that came up to TCU when Napier went to Florida. They've got a great backfield, and their offensive line knows how to get the job done. There's a line that I heard this, this morning about TCU that they not only know how to run the ball, but they know how to get yards when everyone in the stadium knows they're going to run the ball. And so sure. it's not as if uh, it's, it's a, you know, four spread, you know, four wideouts and then they hand the ball off off the middle. Not that they don't do that, but they know how to line up and get the yards that they need. The image that I love from the Oklahoma state game where the frogs won in double overtime, the game winning touchdown, the big 12 fans may not recognize this. We had Max Duggan under center with a fullback, and with a tailback, and they yeah. ran what we used to call 34 power, just you know, just between the guard and the tackle with the fullback lead, and Kendra Miller goes into the end zone, wins the game, beats at that point number eight in the country, Oklahoma State. And so I think, the you know, if, if there's a problem uh, lining up against Gary Patterson, it's not going to be because Sonny Dykes and Garrett Riley don't know how to uh, take advantage of the defense that he is scheming because they did it the last two years, and I'd say it's 60% of the reason they got the job. Sure. Well, then, um, so another question, who needs to have a bigger game, in your opinion? Max Duggan, especially in the red zone where Texas is pretty stout um, on the offensive side, or is it D winners on defense harassing Quinn Ewers? He's the number one sack guy on the Frogs defense. And then also stalking B. John Robinson, I think taking away um, both of those guys, or at least one of the two is going to go a long way and really helping TCU. So which do you think um, which player needs to have a bigger game, Duggan or winners? Well, one of the things that might be lost nationally for people that didn't watch every second of TCU Texas Tech is that D. Winters got a targeting call in the second half against Texas Tech. So he is not going to be eligible to play in the first half. Right Now, th- there's a positive way to look at that is that you just brace yourself in the first half and then you have fresh legs of an amazing linebacker that's going to come in and, and, and not be gassed and be ready to go for the second half. So I, I'm just going to put my chips on Max Duggan. Obviously, he's going to have to perform well with his arm to win this game. He's got to have precision down the field. But I think, you know, I go back to the 2020, the last time the Frogs played in Austin. Max Duggan won that game. That was a top 10 Texas team with his legs. Uh, Dykes and, and Riley have really uh, coached and conditioned Duggan to not tuck it and run every time, you know, his first uh, receiver is not uh, open, which has been one of his problems the previous three years. And Max has, has stood in the pocket and, and found his second and third receiver, which is which has helped a lot. But he's not running the ball out of, uh, out of a busted play the way he used to. I think he's got to have a green light that if he sees grass, he's got to go. Because yeah. he is, you know, he's fast. He's so fast on the field. Some people talk about how he's the fastest player on the team, which I'm not sure I believe. Darius Davis is, is insane. <laughs> but but right. Max Duggan is, he runs hard. He's fast. And he, he's kind of built like an old H-back. And so he, he he's, he's been coached to slide some. But when he when, when he decides there's going to be contact, there's going to be contact. And he's almost, I don't want to say a punishing runner like Tebow, but you you know you had to tackle Max Duggan, and there's a reason that he knows how to get yards after contact. Again, we're talking with Jeff Mitchell from the Frogcast TCU, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. So, Jeff, TCU has won seven of the last ten meetings, six of the last eight against the Longhorns. How do you see this game shaping up? In, in Give me your elevator pitch of how this game should go down according to 
um, the eyes of Jeff Mitchell. The Frogs are going to have to play what will amount to their first complete game of the season. Everybody that watches college football ranking show, everybody that listens to sports radio and they're just kind of doing hits across the country knows, hey, TCU was down in the third quarter and they found a way to come back and win and they do it again and again and again. Um, there, there's no denying that, uh, you know, Gillespie, the defensive coordinator, does an amazing job of adjustments at halftime. But the Frogs can't dig a hole in Austin. Although, you know, Texas has a tendency to get ahead and then find a way to give it away late. And TCU yeah. has a tendency to kind of get behind early and then find a way to fight back and win late. So it might be um, two streams crossing with 420 left in the fourth quarter. But I think if the Frogs are going to win this game, they're going to have to – It's it, they're, they're, they need to have the lead at halftime. They need to be tied at halftime. They cannot be playing from behind against Texas. You know, Texas is probably the most talented team in the Big 12. I'm not sure it's the most, best coach team. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really curious if they're going to be susceptible – to in the passing game, I think that's their weakness. I'm kind of a contrarian on that. I think that's their weakness. But if this game is going to be fun and if TCU is going to win, they're going to have to put together a complete game on both sides of the ball. And, uh, you know, in, in the Big 12, you gotta you got to force field goals and score touchdowns. And when they get into the red zone, that's been an issue the last couple of weeks is red zone offense and red zone play calling. And if they can find a way to turn those field goals into touchdowns, they're going to be in good shape. Yeah, I, I would imagine that points should be uh, a plenty in this one because both teams struggle more mightily in the in the secondary. So, um, again, Jeff, thanks for, for joining us. And uh, before you get on your way with your life, um, tell our, our listeners and your fans the good work that you do online, where they can find you. I'm proud to be part of TC 24-7 Sports, and you can go to hornfrogblitz.com. Jeremy Clark is the, the, the editor of our site. He's been covering the team since 2005. I, I argue that no one has more access to what's going on on the field, in the locker room, and in the administration office than Jeremy Clark. And um, we live and die by recruiting as well. If you want to know who's who's coming up next, and the Frogs are building a good, great recruiting class, hornfrogblitz.com. It's an easy place to subscribe, and you can find all the information that you want about what's going on. You know, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna honor the paywall, but there was some really good information on Quentin Johnston about whether he, you know, his status. You can find that out at Hornfrog Blitz. And then we do a weekly podcast, and we've been doing it since 2015. We go pretty far back in the podcasting world called The Frogcast, and we, we kept that every Sunday night. So we, your Monday morning commute, you can uh, listen to the, to the hopefully another Horn Frog victory over the Longhorns this Monday morning. But you can find us on your podcasting app at Choice and just search for The Frogcast or TCU Football, and you're going to find us. Subscribe, and you'll, you'll know all the latest of what's going on at TCU. We break down the, the last game. We look forward to the next game, and we always sprinkle a little recruiting in there for the hardcore addicts like myself. Excellent. Well, we hope that we can uh, have you back for the Big 12 title game if everything continues the way it is, and then uh, college football playoff for the Frogs as well. Um, love to see the Purple doing well. So good luck this Saturday, and again, thanks for joining us, Jeff. Oh, I appreciate it, guys. I appreciate your work, and thanks for uh, keeping an eye on TCU. It's a great season. Hopefully we can keep winning, and maybe you can have me back on. I look forward to talking with you. All right, now it's time to talk to the home team, the Texas Longhorns, who are favored by a touchdown, even though they are the quote-unquote lower-ranked team in both polls and in the college football poll. But the way the Big 12 is working out this year, I think that rankings can be thrown out the window, especially when you have a pseudo-rivalry between these two 
Texas teams, the old Southwest Conference foes. And we're delighted to talk to Jeremiah Paget. Jeremiah is from Sidelines, Texas, part of the SSN network covering all college football, but Jeremiah focuses on the Texas Longhorns. Jeremiah, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We, Wax and I, we love getting inside and, and getting the pulse with people who, you know, we all love college football. We watch it with as many eyeballs as we can or as much focus as we can, but it's always great to have insiders like you. So we'll start right off here, Jeremiah, looking at this game on Saturday. I'm confident in the talent on this Texas team. I have them ranked 13th in the country in my own polls, even though they're at five and three, my 13 ranking next to them is higher than any other publication that I'm aware of, but they've only had a quote unquote winning November three times in the last nine years, meaning they have either gone two and two, or they've been below the 500 mark in November. Um, Like I said, three times in the last nine years and not since 2018 have they had a winning November. So which is the tougher opponent for the Longhorns this Saturday? Is it the number four TCU Horn Frogs, or is it the Texas Longhorns themselves, given their recent history? That is a great question. Um, I believe I believe it's the Longhorns themselves, um, and I believe there's a lot of uh, and a lot of psychology in the game of college football, and the mental aspect of the game is what Texas is getting better at game by game last week you know we've had problems winning games on the road last week we went on the road won a big road game it's these little steps that this team keeps taking to kind of have them put a more consistent team out there in the field the talent's there um to win these games and now it's more about getting the mentality to be consistent and do it from week to week so i really think it's just about the mindset and then being prepared, you know, during the week and going out and executing. I don't think there, um, there's a, there's not a talent deficiency between, between these two teams. Um, so it's up to Texas to bring it on Saturday. Uh, Jeremiah, what, um, th- th- this seems to set up like a perfect script. TCU always falls, seems to always fall behind and come back Texas seems to get ahead and then hang on for dear life. Um, which of those two scenarios do you think um, is more likely to take place? And can Texas kind of, they, they certainly, this doesn't seem like a team that they can certainly, um, I guess, get gain a lead on and then get confident thinking we've got it won. So do you think that if that happens again to Texas with the script that they normally follow, did it could end up in an L or do you think that they've got enough resolve to pull it out like they did last week when Kansas state started coming back? I think they have enough resolve. There's going to, we might need to make some breaks in the second half. I'll, I'll tell you this, Steve Sarkeesian's first half scripting of games is probably the best in the country. Five out of the six conference games we've played, we've scored at least 24 points or more um, at, in the first half. Um, so the second half that's been kind of our our weakness, and a lot of that has been our own mental mistakes. Like, like I just spoke on pre-snap penalties, um, turnovers, those kinds of things kind of stall and kill drives for us in the second half. and We can't really get it going and get the points going. And on the TCU side, 
it's 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 a really interesting dynamic because they have trailed in several games this year. They've also played three three backup quarterbacks in the second half of games, and then one hobbled uh, Spencer Sanders in the Oklahoma State game. So they haven't had to play a starting quarterback in their last four games for four quarters. Um, so I think that might make a big difference if if we can keep Quinn Ewers protected and have him in for an entire game, I think that's going to present TCU a bigger challenge that they're getting they're getting our best squad for four quarters rather than what they've been experiencing. You know, the last couple of weeks, they've been taking out the starting quarterbacks, and I'm not saying that's dirty or anything like that, but they've kind of lucked out in, on that front. But if we can get Quinn Ewers upright for four quarters – I think I think we can hang in there, and I think we can pull this game off. All right, so looking at Texas defensively, TCU obviously with a, a high-powered offense and very balanced. So who has to have the bigger game on the Texas defensive side on Saturday, Jeremiah? Is it the Texas front four in stopping Kendra Miller, who has ripped off 100-yard games and – a touchdown in every game this season, some of them multiple touchdowns, not to mention Max Duggan and his uh, presence in the pocket and even outside of the pocket. Or is it going to be the Texas back four stopping Max Duggan's uh, high-efficiency passing game, not to mention those receivers? And it's sounding like, I, I mean, I'm reading the tea leaves, it seems like Quentin Johnson is going to give it a go, which why wouldn't you? This is really TCU's biggest game of the year up to this point. So is it the Texas front four? Or is it the Texas back four that needs to come up um, as the MVP on that defensive side this Saturday? I think it's the Texas front four. Uh, right now, Texas is ranked number 32 in run defense. Um, we've yet to allow a 100-yard rusher all season. Um, so I think I, as much as I respect Kendra Miller, I think he's a great back. Sure. I think we can hold him in check. My concern is keeping Max Duggan in check on QB scrambles, design QB runs. That can that can get our defense off balance and kind of open up their playbook a little more. So keeping him in check is the big thing for me. Keeping a spy on Dugan where he can't get outside of the pocket um, and get those extra yards. You know, Duggan's 32 years old now. However old he is, he's been around for a long time. Right. Um, but I think it's the front four. We've got the most QB pressures in in the nation. We've got a great run defense up to this point. Um, so I think if we can bring that on Saturday, contain the run game, make them one dimensional, I think that'll be um, that'll be the key. You know, Quentin Johnson, who was a former Texas commit, you know, before he committed to TCU, is going to be. He's a monster. I mean, he's a great player. Um, but we'll see how he works with the injury. We don't know what the injury is going to look like. I'm nervous about him because he's going to make some plays. I feel like he's going to make some plays. But I think if we can shoot, shut down the run game and make them one-dimensional enough with our front four, I think we can have a good Saturday. Excellent. Yeah, so again, we're talking with Jeremiah Padgett from Sidelines, Texas. So, Jeremiah, how do you see this game shaping up on Saturday and feel free to go with your honesty, with your heart, whatever part of you you want to go with. You're our Texas expert. How do you see this game shaking down on Saturday? 
All right. Well, I'll I'll tell you guys right now. I'm jacked for this game, and I've been jacked for this game since Monday, because this feels like the perfect spot for Texas to come in and steal TCU season or destroy their title hopes, playoff hopes, whatever it is. And I've been saying all week, there's not a symbol or a different name on the front of the Texas jersey. There's not a A&M or TCU. It's the University of Texas. This is the flagship university in this state. And this is the game at home that Texas needs to come in and win and prove that we are the top team in Texas. So I've, I've had, I have a great feeling about it. Uh, I don't know how or when, how specifically we're going to win the game. But I feel like with our crowd and with the way we've been playing the last couple of weeks, I feel like that we have, we have enough to beat TCU. And the biggest thing for me was even from this offseason is the addition of Gary Patterson to our staff and what he's going to provide in terms of insight because he recruited most of these players that are on the TCU team currently. Um, the game planning that he helped Sark with, those kinds of things are going to be huge um, this Saturday. I think he's going to be a huge resource in giving us some specific intel that we might not have had um, without him. So with that, um, I think we're going to come out strong the first half like we have been the last couple games. And I think we're going to put together a little bit better of a second half. Um, and I think we're going to, we're going to send them home pack and we're going to put hit the, those frogs in the mouth, um, bring it, bring a physical game to them and we'll see how they respond to it. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Gary Patterson has been on the winning side of this rivalry, seven of the last 10 meetings. So having him and Burt orange, uh, is certainly a big plus, something that our, our TCU guy didn't necessarily think was as big of a deal. But I, I kind of lean with you, Jeremiah. I think that is a very valuable resource. So as we uh, wrap up here, why don't you tell the people listening uh, where they can find you online and the good work that you do for Texas Longhorn football? Yeah, for sure. I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter. My handle is at SSN underscore uh, Longhorns. Um, and I keep up with all Texas sports, football, basketball, uh, whatever, whatever's out there, whatever's in season, uh, I'm keeping up with, I'm a sports junkie. So, um, yeah, you can find me there, um, do some commentary, do a lot of podcasts like this one. I appreciate you guys having me on for this and, uh, we'll get ready for, uh, get ready for a good game on Saturday and, uh, uh, a horn frog defeat. I'm calling it. All right. Well, uh, yeah, hook them horns. You know, forget that horn frog stuff. Have fun with college game day there in Austin. Good luck in the uh, in this matchup. And as we gear up towards the Big 12 title game, which Texas, a win here, certainly puts them in a great spot. We'd love to have you back on to, to break down that potential championship game, Jeremiah. Thanks for being with us today. Certainly. Thank you for having me. Hook them. All right, it's that time. It's time for the picks here on the CFP podcast. You either win me or win, 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 win. Yeah. Curve everything else. Win, 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 win. So uh, we want to give you fair warning. What you're about to hear is 
not pretty. It's not suitable necessarily for a podcast. So you might want to turn away for about 30 seconds. Uh, not a good week for myself, for Wax, and certainly not for Sully. The three of us combined had five wins to 19 losses. We'll just leave it at that. Wax, you were the winner last week, but that's like saying you were the least ugly of the uh, ugly man competition. So, yes. um, you know, as we stand on the season, uh, Chappie at 41 and 30, 58% total. Sully with uh, uh, his week last week drops to 33 and 38, 46 total for the season, 48, 46%. And then Wax, 27 and 44, 38%. But you are, you're starting to close the gap there, Wax. And I think that we're all due, especially you, for um, success. Especially, I mean, at least you had success in the Breeders' Cup last weekend. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chalk that up to you for that one. Yes. Um, about that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Chappie at 190 and CFP Bucks. Wax at 150. And then Sully is getting close to becoming empty in that uh, CFP piggy bank. He's at 45 bucks. So let's start off in the Big Ten. The battle for the Heartland Trophy between the Wisconsin Badgers and the Iowa Hawkeyes. Iowa is a one-point home favorite. Now, Wex, I, I, I'll tell you honestly, I did not want to pick in this game, but this was the best game in the Big Ten, and that's kind of how we choose these matchups. We take the quote-unquote – uh, most intriguing and maybe most important matchup from each of the conferences, but I am certainly not going to put any amount of coin on this game. In saying that, Wisconsin is eight and two straight up in the last ten, and this is essentially like a pick'em game. Um, so that one point spread is is very thin, and it's actually changed hands since it opened. Now, you talked about Iowa having some offensive success the last couple of weeks. They've scored more points in the last two games than the previous seven games combined. So they put up 59 points total uh, or 57 points total in the last two games. They didn't get that in the first in the previous seven games. And granted, Iowa is a five win team. So in the previous three victories prior to the last two weeks, they they really couldn't muster any offense. Both teams play outstanding defense. I know that a lot of people will say, well, take the under here. The under's pretty low, but I, I think you might still be okay doing that. I think what it's going to come down to is Graham Mertz has been overall efficient this year. I think he's 16 touchdown passes to five interceptions. They do hit on some explosive plays. I trust Braylon Allen and uh, Isaac Garendo to, uh, to be able to rattle off some runs, maybe not get the century mark, but um, it, it comes down to I trust the Wisconsin offense more than I trust the Iowa offense, but the fact that it's played in Kinnick, the fact that Kirk Ferentz is much better than a 500 coach, and the fact that they've got the the wave there at uh, the Children's Hospital, I think that that's going to be the difference. You know, summing it up all around motivation. And traditionally, when I when I pick against Iowa, it does not fare well against me. So in a matchup that's so close, I trust the the dean of the Big Ten, Kirk Ferentz over the up-and-comer Jim Leonard, even though Jim Leonard is a very, very good football mind. I'm going to take the Hawkeyes laying a point here. Um, keep in mind, the home team has won four of the last five, so that's another reason that I, I lean to the Hawkeyes here. But again, staying away from it, this is a smelly, smelly game. Wax, what do you like between the Badgers and the Hawkeyes? Yeah, these are the two teams I thought would really be battling out for the uh, West Division supremacy. So in that aspect... I guess it's interesting, but you're right. There's not a whole lot to choose from this week 
in the Big Ten. Um, everything you said does ring true with the numbers kind of favoring Iowa. Um, I will say that um, Wisconsin, as an away dog, it hasn't happened very often because their program has been pretty good. But heading into this season, they were 7-5. and five, And the numbers are really even here for both teams. I mean, both are kind of grinded out offense, and they can play some lockdown defense. Each has a standout linebacker with Jack Campbell for Iowa and uh, Nick Herbig for Wisconsin. Um, I'm going to go to the turnovers that will really decide this. In the last four games, Wisconsin is plus five in the turnover category. Iowa is minus one. So I think that if Wisconsin can just force one or two short fields and not have to navigate a whole lot of uh, green, that they can put up a touchdown and then their defense can kind of really match up well with with Iowa's offense. Um, So I'm going to go with the Badgers in this one. Again, it's basically a pick'em game. So I'm going to take Wisconsin to uh, come out of Kinnick Stadium with an upset victory. Okay, so going with the Badgers. Sully is taking the Iowa Hawkeyes in this one. Um, So we'll see. Two of us will uh, be on either the winning side or the losing side here. So let's go to the group of five matchup, and we're putting this in because it's an earlier game. Number 22, UCF traveling to New Orleans to Yulman Stadium to take on the number 16 Tulane Green Wave. And again, these are rankings according to the the AP Top 25, not necessarily the CFP rankings, but Tulane is in that CFP grouping. Uh, How do you like this matchup shaken down between the Green Wave and the Knights Wax? Uh, it certainly is maybe it's, it's better than Wisconsin, Iowa. I'll tell you that much, but um, I think that this, this will probably be the de facto um, leg up for the American championship. I know that Cincinnati is still in the mix. This doesn't seem like the same Cincinnati team in terms of a powerhouse. Um, they, they had trouble putting Navy away last week. They're not in the CFP rankings, both UFC and Tulane are. So um This one is kind of strength against strength. UCF has the second best offense in the American and Tulane um, has kind of gotten it done with their defense all season. Um, This is another one where I am going to look at the turnovers and for the year UCF has had some, some pretty inopportune games where they put the ball on the carpet or thrown it away. And UCF is near the bottom, not just in the American but nationally in turnovers while Tulane has done a really good job forcing opponents to lose the football. So I think a lot of these stats are even for both of these teams. It is an, an, another small number, basically just have to win the game. I think being in new Orleans, uh, UCF has the upper hand in the series, but both of Tulane's wins in the last 10 have come at home. So I think that this is a Tulane team that Willie Fritz is going to get it done and they will be able to raise their hands high and come away with the win. And I'm going to put $10 on the green wave. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you here. I At first, when I, when I looked at this on paper, I thought, okay, UCF, they're my team in the AAC. They've won four straight against the green wave. But this is a different two-lane team. Even though they're just two and eight all time against UCF, both wins have come in New Orleans where this game is being played. I honestly thought that college game day should have gone here. I don't 
think that they've ever been to Tulane. And it's always cool when you can see them at a new campus, a new venue. They've been to Austin before. Um, you know, that game seemingly would have been a, a perfect fit for the the Fox Big Noon kickoff, which it still might be. But, you know, I, I digress from that point. Uh, this is a uh, this is a tough stretch for Tulane. They've got UCF, SMU, and then at Cincinnati. So they the winner of this game will certainly be in the driver's seat for home field advantage in the AAC championship game because the team with the best record gets to host that title game. This very well could be a first matchup between these two teams who could see each other again in that title game. Willie Fritz is 19 and nine against the spread at home as coach at Tulane. We know that Gus Malzahn has not typically played well, whether he's been at Auburn or here at UCF away from home. Um, he's just 0-2 against the number as an away dog, 10-14 and 14 straight up overall on the road. Uh, UCF's red zone defense is their, their bulk of their strength on defense. They do, they do play a really aggressive defense. Jason Johnson, Devad Wilson in the linebacking and secondary there. Uh, but Tulane, they do a good job of limiting explosive plays, which is really what UCF can do. I know that UCF wants to run the football. They are a top, 10 team in terms of rush offense, but this two lane defense is, is really something good. They're, they're up there in the top 25 in scoring defense and total defense. I like the combination they have on offense with Michael Pratt at quarterback, Ty J Spears, Deuce Watts, Jalen Jackson, or I'm sorry, Jason Jackson at wide receiver. Willie Fritz is a guy who has won at Sam Houston state. He's slowly developing the, this two lane program into one of those that is such a tough out. They had a, a struggle last year, lost a lot of close games. They're getting it done this year. They've been impressive in really every game except for the somewhat inexplicable loss to Southern Miss. So I'm going to side with you. I'm going to take the green wave here as a one-point favorite at home to knock off the UCF Knights and get that AAC victory and stay undefeated in conference. And uh, Sully is going to take the Knights. He's putting 10 CFP bucks on the Gus bus doing some damage in Tulane. All right, we go to the SEC. Number 10 Alabama against number 11 Ole Miss at Vaught-Hemingway Stadium. The Tide are a road 11-point favorite. So Lane Kiffin getting 11 points at home. This has not been a situation where Ole Miss has played well. They've lost the last six in a row against the Tide by an Average margin of 31 points per game. Lane Kiffin is 0-2 in that time, losing by 21 points last year, 15 points in 2020. We know that Ole Miss runs the ball really well. I think they're the number two rush offense in the country with Quinshawn Judkins, but also Zach Evans. Jackson Dart has been playing better of late, but as the offense seems to be getting better, the defense is taking steps back and you don't want to play an Alabama team in this position where they lost a game and people are just questioning, you know, is Alabama done? Is Nick Saban done? I think that's really, really poking the bee's nest. And we're going to see a motivated Alabama team going into Oxford, a position where Alabama has done so well. They move the chains on offense. They've, you know, people talk about how they don't have that explosive receiver. But they're efficient on offense, and Bryce Young is still playing at a uh, a very good level right now. The defense has a lot of athletes, and they're physical enough to where I think they can match that run game of 
Ole Miss. So I'm going to take the tide here, laying the 11 and winning semi-comfortably because that's what they've done in this position in years past. And I don't think that the game has passed Saban by. I don't think that he has lost his uh, flair for it. I think that he's still a fighter and always will be a fighter. He comes from a coal mining family. So you know that he puts in the work and there's really no task that's insurmountable. So give me the tide here laying 11 wax. Yeah, I uh, tend to agree. The last, and, and you had to dig here because there haven't been a lot of regular season losses for Alabama, but the last two times they lost in the regular season um, was in 2019, the week after they beat Mississippi state by 31. And then last year they lost to Texas A&M. They beat Mississippi state by 40. So what you say, poking the bear, I think Saban is, has been on these guys all week. Um, Ole Miss cosmetically looks good. They get after the quarterback pretty well. Um, They can make some big plays, but their defense overall still allows too many yards. They're 57th in uh, yards per play in non-garbage time. They're averaging over five and a half yards per play allowed. And last I checked, Alabama's offense was still pretty good. I mean, they scored 49 against Tennessee. So I think the fact that there's the motivation – even though they are by all rights out of the CFP, Saban's going to tell them they're not and that they still have something to play for and they could still win the East. So um, I think that Alabama wins this one like you comfortably. I think it's two touchdowns, maybe even 17 or 20. I'm putting 20 bucks on the Crimson Tide. You know, Sully's also putting 20 bucks on the game, but Mr. Roll Tide, Mr. Alabama, maybe he's, going reverse psychology here. He's taken Ole Miss to cover the 11 points and riding that lane train, putting 20 CFP bucks on it. So we'll see if it works out in his favor. I think he's just hedging his bet. That way, if Bama wins, he's a happy Sully. But if Ole Miss keeps it close or if Ole Miss wins outright, he looks like uh, the smart guy in the room. So. Well, yeah, and, and until last year, Saban had never lost to his assistants, and Lane was one of his assistants. I will say, Lane trolls as well as anybody on Twitter, yeah. but I think if Nick sees any of that, it's going to be friendships out the window. I'm putting your face in the dirt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, so going out to the Pac-12 Wax, number six, Oregon, an 11-point home favorite at Autzen Stadium against number 24, Washington. Um, this one could put a little shakeup in the Pac-12 race and give the Huskies a chance to stay in the thick of things if they come out victorious here. Do you like the Huskies to not only beat the 11-point spread but possibly win outright, or do you like Oregon to continue to roll as they have been? Wax, start us off. Uh, The numbers would certainly point to Oregon in this series. Uh, They're 15-2 and straight up and against the spread, including 7-1 and ATS in Eugene. So they pretty much had the Huskies number. I like what Washington has done this year. It's a great story under uh, Kalen DeBoer, but you look at Oregon, the way that they are just, um, they're boat racing people. Meanwhile, Washington, for all of their uh, improvement, they won by 10 over Arizona, by a touchdown over Cal, and by three points over Oregon State. They have really had to fight and scrap for some of these wins. And Arizona and Cal are pretty much mediocre teams. And those games weren't really decided until the fourth quarter. I think Oregon's on a roll. 
And while this seems like a pretty high number, I don't think it's high. I think Oregon wins this one by a couple of touchdowns. Bo Nix continues his ascent up the Heisman rankings, and the Ducks continue to be major players in the CFP. So give me the Ducks minus the 11. Yeah, I'm going to take the Ducks here because they're playing in Autzen. I mean, really, the, the closest game that Oregon has played after the Georgia game, which we know wasn't close, was against Washington State. And Washington State's offense, similar to the Huskies, they, they can throw the ball pretty well. Um, defensively, Washington State was, you know, their front gave Oregon a little bit of trouble. Now, it didn't stop Bo Nix from putting points on the board and from moving the ball around the yard. But relative to the other opponents that Oregon has faced, I think that Washington stacks up closely to Wazoo. That being said, uh, Oregon is playing some of the best football of any team in the country right now. I think that they're on a mission. And this game could be close because it is a rivalry. These two schools, these fan bases hate each other. And I don't like using that word often, but they do hate each other. And I think that in the second half, Oregon's just going to wear down Washington, pull away and win by those two scores. So 11 points doesn't scare me, especially when you consider that Oregon is in the top 10 in pass efficiency, in rush offense. Their O-line protects Bo Nix, but they also paved the way for their running backs, Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington, not to mention Mr. Nix himself. They put up points. Um, I think that there's more concerns with Washington than there is with Oregon. So I'm going to lay the 11 points and quack it with the Ducks. Mr. Sullivan is going against us. He's taking the Huskies here to beat the number and go into Eugene and either make it close or win outright. All right, let's go to the Big 12, the game that we talked about with our guests, Jeff Mitchell and Jeremiah Padgett. Again, thanks to them for being on the show. We've got TCU, who is a seven-point underdog, a role that they're kind of familiar with, even being the higher-ranked team. Going into Austin, the number 18 Longhorns laying a touchdown in this one. So I'll start off here. Uh, Texas has lost seven of the last 10 to TCU, but in their five wins, or I'm sorry, in their six wins this year, Texas has won five of those six games by seven points or more. Going into this, I, I, I figured Texas, you know, I, I like Texas to win this game outright, but my question was, is it going to be closer than seven TCU the way that they have played, especially the way they've come back, even if they don't win this game, I thought maybe they could keep it within that one score. But again, five of the six victories that the Longhorns have are by seven or more. So, you know, maybe at worst I get a push here, but even in their three losses, it was a one point loss to Alabama, a, an overtime loss to Texas tech, and then a four point loss to Oklahoma state. Two of those three games on the road, I think playing at night, having college game day there, the last time uh, they had that, they played really well against a, a team that at the time we thought overmatched them in Alabama. I like the way Texas is uh, trending upward here. And I think Steve Sarkeesian, this is his prove me game. If, if he wins this game, even if it's by seven points against the top four team at home, it will prove that they maybe turn the corner and they're winning the games that they should win as they gain momentum. They haven't done that in really the last decade, Wax, but I like the Longhorns in this one, minus seven, and I'm going to put um, no money on it, but uh, give me the horns here. What do you like? Um, this is certainly either going to be continuation of Texas 
bringing themselves back to relevance or a continuation of TCU's storybook season. Um, there are certainly elements to go with either side. I think Texas being at Darrell Royal Stadium, the atmosphere is going to be off the hook, and I do think that Texas gets the win. However, the way TCU plays in that they play till the final whistle and they're making plays, and they historically have covered in this series um, and actually pulled a few upsets, um, I think that the Horned Frogs stay within the seven. I think the Longhorns win, but I think you're looking at about a three or a four-point game with maybe a late score from TCU setting up some dramatics in the final minute or two. All right, moving on to the ACC, number 17, North Carolina, and probably the hottest quarterback outside of Eugene, Oregon, in the country, Drake May, and some especially in Chapel Hill, would argue that Drake May is the best quarterback in the country. I saw a statistic that, uh, or I saw a graphic that, statistically speaking, in terms of yards, touchdowns to interceptions, and even rushing yards, that Drake May has better stats than Heisman favorite C.J. Stroud right now. Now, granted, um, you know, you, you split hairs there, and he's going against ACC competition. But this game in um, Winston-Salem at Wake Forest, the Tar Heels are three-point favorites against the Deeks. And right off the bat, I had to look and see, has Sam Hartman ever lost three straight games? And this is not my, my bromance, my man crush on number 10 for the Deeks. This is just straight-up facts. He has not lost three straight games in his career. Um, he has only lost, I think, three starts at home. And that's where the Tar Heels are going into. Mac Brown, the head coach for UNC, has not fared too well on the road. Um, the home team in this series has won the last seven meetings, both straight up and against the number. Uh, Wake Forest is very good in pass efficiency, and they can score points. North Carolina, we know that they're good in pass efficiency as well. They're also good in the red zone. So first of all, I would take the over in this one, I don't know the number off the top of my head. It's got to be in the 60s, but either way, I would still take the over. I think we're going to see these defenses struggle in stopping teams from scoring, and their offenses do a damn good job of scoring. So take the over regardless, but I actually like Wake Forest in this spot. I might even call for them to take the outright upset of North Carolina. The Tar Heels, basically, um, they can stumble here and still represent the, the down coastal division in the ACC championship. I know that UNC wants to finish the year with only that one loss to Notre Dame, play against Clemson, most likely in the ACC championship, and possibly win that one. I know that there's you know those that outside shot of maybe a CFP appearance if they get a lot of help. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, and I think it, it kind of gets shattered here. I'm going to call for the Deeks to not only beat the three-point spread, but to get the upset victory over Mack and the Tar Heels. So go Sam Hartman. Do it number 10. I'm taking Wake here, Wax. Um, I am in agreement with you. I think that this uh, has a potential to be a really back-and-forth game. Both offenses uh, have really good signal callers, veterans, um, and have some weapons on the outside. Uh, Wake Forest is typically good in this position as a home dog. Um, Dave Clawson certainly gets them ready. Um, I think North Carolina, the fact that they don't get much pressure on the quarterback, they're last in the ACC in sacks. 
Um, Wake Forest isn't great, but they're middle of the pack. If they can just affect Drake May a little bit, now he is a, a, a pretty good runner, and Sam Hartman is underrated in that area. You don't call him a runner, but he extends plays, and he'll take off if he needs to. But the fact that North Carolina doesn't affect the passer very much could give Wake Forest extra time on some of those mesh plays that they have um, and just should give Sam Hartman all kinds of time to throw. So I think getting points at home, this seems like one of those trap games that Vegas wants you to take North Carolina. I'm not going to. I'm going to take the Deacons getting three at home, and I would not be the least bit shocked if they win the game outright. At a boy, Wax, uh, giving you a, uh, a remote high five here. So Sully is going against the grain, and he's putting 20 CFP bucks on UNC and the fighting Mac Brownies. Um, Does he have money left even? <laughs> he's got $45, but he's, he's okay. borrowing against the, the house here. Uh, okay. Dangerous move, Mr. Sullivan. By it the is. way, Sully, Sully took Texas in the TCU-Texas game, and he put 10 CFP bucks on that. And I forgot to mention, I am going to put 20 CFP bucks on Oregon um, laying the 11 and winning that number against Washington. So our final game to pick here, number one, Georgia at Mississippi state, Georgia is a 16 and a half point road favorite in this one bulldogs versus bulldogs. So take the dogs wax and you, you can't lose here. Uh, but how do you like this game going down between, um, these two teams in Starkville? Um, I think that Mississippi State is probably going to be the victim of – they were probably hoping, ah, you know what, maybe Georgia was looking ahead to us and, uh, <laughs> and, and that was never going to happen. I mean, I think that they knew that Georgia was going to be able to beat Tennessee, but I don't know if they thought that they would handle them so supremely. Mississippi State's problem this year has been uh, – they, they have not been able to sustain drives – they are near the bottom of the SEC in third down conversions. That's not a stat you want to be deficient in against Georgia. For all the talk of Georgia's defense, and it is very good, they are right up there with Tennessee in yards per play and explosive offense. So Mississippi State would just choose to kind of dink and dunk and take a 15-play drive and take the air out of the ball, whereas Georgia can score on just a couple of plays – and 16 and a half, again, seems like a lot to give on the road. But I just think Georgia is so focused on the finish line that they are going to be um, just kind of snarling. Even after the Tennessee, there won't be a letdown. And they will kind of put the other Bulldogs uh, into a cage. All right. So taking the dogs. Sully's taking the dogs. I'm, Georgia, that is. I'm putting 30 on Georgia. All right. Going 30. Um, I agree with you in terms of Georgia here. So Mississippi state's offense is built on defenses, making mistakes. It's, it's short, easy passes. And when I say easy, I mean, safe passes. Will Rogers has one of the highest uh, completion percentages in the country, but not really a, a big yard per attempt number. Um, and like I said, it, it's predicated on defenses making mistakes. Well, Georgia's defense doesn't make mistakes. Nope. It's a mistake to go against Georgia, or it's a mistake to assume that uh, Georgia's going to make a mistake on defense. It's not going to happen. Kirby Smart, 11-3 and against SEC West teams in the last five-plus years. I think that the combination of Stetson Bennett to 
uh, Brock Bowers, but more so the, the combination of Bennett to Ladd McConkey is the most underrated pass-catching duo in college football. We've heard all season that Georgia does not have a deep threat. Georgia does not have that game-breaking wide receiver. Um, Brock Bowers is a game-breaking receiver. He may not be a wide receiver. And then Ladd McConkey, we saw him against Tennessee. He's, uh, he's deadly in the open field, and he is incredibly quick. I mean, it, it blows my mind that this guy was a two-star coming out of high school it's a great story uh i mean so the combination of undervalued stetson bennett to underappreciated lad mcconkey is something that's a a good story for georgia bulldog fans i think that this offense just cruises they've got a great red zone offense their offensive line is beating up teams the only chance that mississippi state has not even to win but just to cover the 16 and a half points that they're being given is if tyrus wheat and Emmanuel Forbes play uh, the you know they they win the takeover game and Wheat is able to get into that backfield and harass Stetson Bennett and Forbes gets a pick you know I think he's got five or six coming into this game so if Mississippi State can cause Georgia to turn the ball over twice maybe 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 they keep within the sixteen and a half points I don't see that happening like I said Todd Munkin is doing a great job on offense calling those plays and his his. Guys running the plays and guys on the field are just doing it. They go about three or four deep at every position on offense and defense. We saw that last week against Tennessee. So give me the number one Bulldogs of Georgia, laying the 16 and a half and covering easy here. Yeah, also the last five times they've played in Starkville, Georgia has won four of them. So usually by more than a couple of touchdowns. So right. going to Stark Vegas – does not leave the, uh, the, the the hangover effect for Georgia. Yeah, those cowbells are, are probably going to be pretty quiet uh, after the first quarter. So, mm-hmm. all right, well, that wraps it up. Uh, hopefully a more profitable picks segment as we see the games unfold on Saturday. So make sure to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chappie CFB. He's at CFFM Waxman. This has been the CFP Podcast. Make sure that you also check out our website, cfpcollegefootball.com, where you'll get great knowledge of college football from the experts. So reach out, hit us up with any and all takes. We like the banter because we love the sport. Thanks for helping us live our passion, and all we ask is you keep listening, you spread the love, and you continue to help us to rise above. For Wax and for Sully, I'm Chappie. Enjoy your passion. Happy college football. Happy weekend. Good night, everybody.